Can you imagine what the exercise industry will look like a month or a year from now? In this episode, I sit down with Gregory Gordon. He is a neuromuscular specialist who holds a master's degree in motor learning and movement science with over 20 years of experience. Gregory also owns his own company called Exercise Intelligence in New York. We dive deep into concepts that are of vital importance to the future of the exercise industry, like confusion for consumers and professionals. I mean, what is the industry all about? Health or just vanity or longevity? We talk about commoditization versus specialization, dog walkers versus dog trainers, identity versus roles, cognitive distortions shifting your reality, and systems you can use to help people that you love to work with. So what reality do you want to create? You could wait for a new normal, or you could build your new normal. Now on to the conversation with Gregory Gordon. Did that again. My hair was long again. I probably got like the last haircut in New York City before they closed the city. Oh, nice touch. For us, at least, you know, I don't know what it appeared like to the rest of the country, but and historically, it will look like they shut things down in phases, but at least, um, you know, like being down on the street level, like, bit like whatever, I want to say maybe it was like the week, March 13th was the Monday. I could be off by a day or so. Mm-hmm. But that Monday, I had a full week of appointments in my office. And even that Monday, you know, there people were like, so is this affecting your business at all yet? And I was like, no, you know, I don't know. Like business as usual. And then I think I got my haircut that, that Wednesday. And that Wednesday, as I was getting my haircut, my um, stylist was like, is this affecting your work at all? I was like, no, not really. And she was like, yeah, we're starting to see some people cancel. And then the next, I think maybe that evening, they decided to close the schools. And once they closed the schools, it was like the rug was pulled up. And, like, I've been unemployed since then. Like, yes. And the city went from, like, you know, the city to, like, a ghost town, essentially, in that one day, basically. As soon as they closed the schools, everything changed. It's an episode of Westworld. Kind of. (laughs) You know, it's like this trans-dimensional portal that leads you to... Um, what life was is really going to be like if imagine imagine if if COVID nineteen was even more deadly. You know what I mean? Like what? Yeah. What would what would happen? I mean, yeah, this it's very contagious. It's just like you know, it could be that much more deadly, and and I, I don't know, man. Like it, it's a it's a whole model of, I mean, as a, a model of things of what's to really come in society. You know, it's. It's pretty crazy, and, and to see the disruption um, of how our lives need to be carried on in a very specific manner for for the economy to work and for and for us to be effective at, w- at what we do, it's like there's a whole pivot going on, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I've lived in New York long enough that I actually lived there during nine eleven. I was directly. I was managing a gym called New York Sports Club that was effectively, I don't know, three blocks from ground zero. So mm. I was there. Like, I had to actually go. 
because in the morning when we were there, we didn't know yet whether it was like a terrorist attack or just really bad luck of two planes. Oh, and there was, you know, the time period between the two planes hitting. Yeah. So I actually walked from my apartment after the first plane before the second plane hit. And as I was walking to the gym, which is down by ground zero, people were walking past me with like black soot on their face. Oh. But the reason I bring it up is that obviously for a period of time, the world changed, New York City changed, and, you know, we're like, this is how, you know, this is New York, and we stick together, and we help each other, and that lasted for about a week, and then, you know, people got back to their own personal orbits and lives, and, you know, started, you know, being as discourteous as we are to each other on the ground. <laughs> I... I tend to be pretty circumspect when I think there's going to be huge sweeping human condition changes. Although part of me hopes that I'm wrong and um, part of me hopes that I'm actually right, that things will get back to pretty close to normal. But I don't know. But I, I tend to hedge my bets on that. Like once like the emergency is over, people naturally just sort of shift back to their sort of presets. Oh, um, yeah, we've kind of got a regression to the mean. Yeah, but I don't know, and at least in terms of the fitness industry and what that's going to look like, I don't know. I mean, I, I think they're – I could sort of make the argument either way. I could definitely see, like, some sustainable changes, both pro and cons, happening after this, and I could also make the argument that, like, you know, once we have some sort of treatment – like prior to a vaccine, but some sort of treatment that just sort of like at least mitigates the symptoms and that things will just kind of go back to normal. But, you know, I don't have a crystal ball either. So I well, don't know. Think about what, um, what normal's been like for the exercise industry. Uh, really this unsustainable you know, usage of, of exercise, you know. Um, and, and that seems to that seems to be accelerated because I mean, a lot of people that are influencers of the space are in their twenties and thirties and, and have yet to wear themselves out. You know, it, that's why I thought the, the paper that you wrote was pretty pivotal in the idea of like the conscious, conscientious observer in the idea where you're, you're seeing what's really happening and you're asking really important questions as a practitioner and or a consumer. You know, because it's like if the same thing sucks over and over and over again, why would you do it? Well, certainly one thing there's not going to be a shortage of after this is over is unsolicited exercise advice. Because mm -hmm. like, I wish I could, I wish I could buy stock in that because that is <laughs> more surplus of unsolicited exercise advice than a billion life, you know, trips around the sun could ever use. So. <laughs> Yeah, look, I think that obviously um, the, a ton, if, if you have eyeballs, like you can't escape like this unsolicited exercise advice. And, um, and look, the truth, like people like you and I that have, you know, who are kind of samurais in a way, dedicated their lives to like asking questions and, you know, trying to learn, you know, nugget by nugget. Um, Obviously, we're going to have a different take on seeing all the stuff that's getting pumped out for the mass consumer. So, but the point of that paper was 
to say that like the most important thing for anybody. So ultimately, and depending on your perspective, it's either glass half empty or half glass half full thing. In my opinion, we all ultimately have to be our own advocate in terms yeah. of our healthcare. Um, and I don't expect everybody to drop what they're doing and go to grad school and become a doctor, but you have to. So I think one of the positive things that could come out from this is that I could definitely see that there's going to be a shift more towards virtual training sessions or virtual, you know, that was already sort of blossoming with um, Peloton and, you know, all sorts of other virtual fitness platforms. But it certainly seems to me that it's reasonable to say that after this, there's going to be an even bigger shift there. And so what, so there's a couple things that if I had my druthers, this is what I'd like to see come out of it. One is that, um, so I, do you have a dog? I have a, I have a, like a 90 year old cat. <laughs> okay. So I, not that I love cats too, but when you have a dog, typically that means you have a dog walker. And so I, my dog unfortunately passed away over the summer, but my dog was a rescue dog who was also part Chihuahua. He was also rescued from a fighting ring in Brooklyn. Wow. So needless to say, when I adopted her, she had some behavioral issues. Mm-hmm. And so for a while, I hired a dog trainer for, for several sessions. And so in a simplified way, the way I think about what I'd like to see happen in the fitness world is that when I sign up for a dog walker, a dog walker is anywhere from like 15 to $20 for a walk. And my expectations for a dog walker are that they show up on time, walk my dog, don't steal stuff out of my house because I'm typically not there when they come. When you bring your dog to the dog trainer, that is an, a specialist. And that person charges five times as much as the dog walker. Mm-hmm. I, my expectation for what I expect to get out of after I pay this enormous sum to the dog, dog trainer is significantly different. I'm expecting to see the behavioral changes that were promised to me. And if not, I'm expecting to understand like why not and like what the phases would be. But what I would like to see is that, I don't know, do you guys have Equinox out there? We do not. Uh, we have, we have pretty much like everything yeah, like else, lifetime, but, right? but yeah, we have a lifetime that just, just set up shop in Brookfield, which is right outside of Milwaukee. Okay. So I don't know, like Equinox makes it like just incredibly confusing for the consumer. I, they must have at least five levels of personal trainer. I know they have four, but I think then they've got this extra, like triple extra super on top guy. So for the average consumer, you've got five different levels a trainer, five, you know, different price points that are not all that significant. And like, that's just so confusing for the consumer. And like, I just don't understand why you would like, if what's the difference between the level two person and the level three person. And so to me, the way I think there's a lot of value in the person that likes to exercise themselves, has that good energy, good motivation, um, and is interested in doing this for a living, but is not really willing to commit to all the study of all the different sciences you have to learn to really be a trainer. Yeah. So I, yeah. I think it would be great if there was a whole of all these Instagram influencers, or whatever, 
that if they go the route of like the dog walker, that they, they are charging, like instead of paying $150 for this Equinox trainer that's a level two out of five and like you're not really sure what you're getting, make it 50 bucks or 40 bucks. And it's someone that knows exercises that is going to give you their attention. That's nice. That's motivating. And then on the other end of people like us, and maybe this sounds self-serving, but, you know, obviously we're going to be like not for the gross you know, general population, we're, we're going to be specialists that charge a lot more money that the expectations on us because of that are, you know, people are looking for a specific result and that's fine. And like, I think that's what would make a lot more sense to me that like there's these the sort of two ends, either you really need a specialist that you're going to commit the time and money to, or really you just want someone that's going to be with, with you because I don't know about you, but when I go to the gym and I, without, you know, trying to sell it, like I'm throwing every personal trainer under the bus. When I just watch personal training sessions in whatever gym I'm at, wherever I am in the world, it's, you know, a lot more like talking and bullshitting than it is like someone like, you know, really getting through like specific and that's fine. Well, like in the gym I'm, Yeah, I'm not going to the Olympic training center to like, you know, run on a treadmill. I'm going to like neighborhood gyms and and that's fine. So I think that if people now while they're sort of um, force the kind of exercise at home if they're sort of reevaluating like huh like I'm actually able to do this on my own when I can go back to the gym is it really worth my time to pay so much money um, for a trainer that honestly like I think it's good if it, if it leads to a period of um, critical thought by a lot of the consumers to see if what they're if they're getting what they're paying for and if not sort of organically just creating these two ends of the spectrum. Because then I think like anyone that wants to make a living in this industry can. You just kind of have to know like, and for the people that are like really on the, you know, the, the dog walker end for, for lack of a better term, like if you so choose to like want to be a specialist, then yeah, like here are all these steps and all these commitments to education you have to make. And that's totally fine. But if you're not willing to make that commitment, then, you know, I think that that end of the spectrum is going to have to, uh, going to have to be recalibrated. And I think there's, what you brought up are, are like, there's a lot of really awesome ideas in there. Number one, uh, I love the analogy. Um, I love the analogy of dog walker versus dog trainer. Um, and I think going off of that, there's two different routes that I think in, in our field, you know, with people that are spending the time um, searching for that continuing education rather than um, more self-serving biased opinion that ends up pigeonholing you down a rabbit hole of, you know, everything has to be about um, um, function, functional training. Um, everything has to be about um, observing what's tight and what's weak you know, that kind of stuff, all that dogma. I think um, the professionals, number one, but I don't know if you've seen this, and I'd love to hear your opinion. They spend very little time um, understanding the communicative skills that it takes to be able to describe even what they do so that they can find and reach people that they relate to so that they're continually frustrated with getting the word out of, of how they can help because they themselves really 
are, are so confused by the human organism, by its, complex, by its complexity of what they can actually affect, that they lack the confidence to actually deliver a specific message of, of some sort of expectation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I actually wish, see, I feel like it's, I wish people, I wish I got the sense that more people were humbled and, uh, you know, by the complexity of the human body versus the, what I typically see is that I feel like most people, um, you know, feel like they've got much more mastery of the complexity than they, than they have. Um, so, um, yeah, I, a couple things is that like, one thing I definitely agree with is that just like unsolicited advice we have in surplus, I feel like just listening in general, I mean, and this cuts across every human being. I just feel like listening is something that we, you know, is, is such a finite resource. Um, and it's something, you know, that I've, I, I still need to work on it. I still try to work on it, but, um, what are some things that you've been doing to help that? You know, I think just a, like the, like the first step in knowing you're an alcoholic is just saying you're, you know, recognizing that you're an alcoholic, not so, having another drink, <laughs> but, um, just admitting it. So, you know, the one thing that I feel like in addition to whatever, like educational skills and technical skills I've learned over the past, you know, maybe since I saw you last in 10 years or so, um, just being a better listener um, in my life outside of the clinic and but in the clinic really significantly that I feel like to your point that when someone would come in first of all like what we're doing is because like people are generally unaware of it and we could be talking about like you know we kind of share a similar worldview in terms of like exercise and these other modalities we might do like muscle testing and stuff but because I felt like I had to spend so much time like I felt like someone in the back of my mind I would let someone sort of speak just so I could sort of like start like giving them my like spiel um, and because I was trying to get through so much information and really show them because uh, you know I don't take insurance and because our work is so labor intensive, our costs tend to be higher. And because they have no other context to sort of relate it to, I just felt all this pressure and like, you know, wanting someone to leave, feeling like, you know, I just delivered this incredible sermon to them. So I feel like uh, through a lot of hard work, which is funny enough, means just being more passive and just listening. Um, is a skill I've really, I've, is a skill I've tried to, and I feel like I have improved upon in the last 10 years. And, you know, it's not that this would be, uh, come across as a surprise to anybody, but the more, and, you know, even within that, like, there's still the role of the, of the clinician is like, you know, there is a point to where, like, you know, you can't, if someone is like going off on tangent after tangent, mm. part of that listening isn't really serving either of your purposes anymore. So like there's still a degree where you have to sort of 
guide and control and massage the way the the conversations are going. But oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you, yeah. having having the expectations out there, um, having up for contracts to be able to or like um, verbal contracts, so mm-hmm. that you know where things are going. Those mm-hmm. come in super super handy. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's also like people are. Um, they're just not used to someone like leading in that way, especially in exercise. And I think, <laughs> and I think most people actually tend to, um, I, I, I think it does two major things that it establishes trust and it establishes transparency when you come across things that way. And that tends to relax someone because I think people are always like, you know, bracing, waiting for the punchline of like, you know, whatever you're, trying to sell them but um just uh listening in general and you know to be honest like on a day-to-day basis um you know sometimes i feel like i've covered what i want to cover with someone in terms of like meeting them and explaining like you know how what my thought process would be in terms of working with them. And there's plenty of days where like, you know, honestly, I'm just listening for most of the time. I'm doing a tiny bit of explaining. Um, but I felt like we've, that's what was necessary for that day. We've established rapport. Then it's on me over the period of time that like, look, ultimately I have to, um, I've got to inform them to a certain degree, but I'm sure you've had this experience too, where, I mean, I've literally worked with people for years and they'll be like, you know, they'll ask me questions that are totally, like, they still think I'm a massage therapist or something, you know, so like, <laughs> at, at point, it's, like it's, mag- it's magical. It's all yeah, magical. In my, my best intentions of like, cause I think education is critical. Like yeah. I said, like, I think ultimately it's really important that everybody becomes their own healthcare advocate. And I feel like it's my responsibility to teach people as and educate them as we go through the process. But it's also like, I can't, I can't force it in. So, you know, well, with, with that being said, is there, um, certain things that you've done and systems that you put in place that, um, are like key educational points along the way? Um, it depends on the, it, Certainly, like everything, it obviously depends on the person, depends on the problem we're trying to solve. Um, And yeah, some of the stuff I've, so I'm a big fan and uh, for transparency purposes, I know I'm just a student of this this, uh, company. I have no business relationship with them, but do you know David Butler and Norma Mosley? Yep. Like, yeah. So yeah. I'm just, you know, I take their courses and I buy their books and I'm just a huge fan of the way they, their education system. Um, and I've invested in a lot of their products to like show people and give people and, and that hasn't been as effective as I would have hoped hmm. and it could be the way I'm doing it. So ultimately I think what seems to work best is just, taking like one issue sort of doing a a, like showing someone on a skeleton with like a piece of tubing or you know maybe just showing how a joint moves and then just in really simple terms you know never using like 
you know, complex anatomy terms, just in really simple terms, trying to just explain, at least on the biological, physical level, well, here's what could be happening. And then, you know, making sure, so, you know, the, David Butler and Lorimer Mosley, they come from a biopsychosocial perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And by extension, so do I, because I'm a student of theirs. And, and that's how, and to the, to the, to the point that like, what it wants, someone is coming to see me, not because I'm um, for psychology or, you know, they're coming to see me because they have physical pain. Physically. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, part of my job is figuring out, okay, in the biological side, what could be causing this pain? And then, like I said, showing them what I think could be happening and explaining, okay, so here's what I think could be happening. And here's how I, here's how I want to go about solving this problem. But then again, listening and at least just talking to them a little bit about the wiring of pain and you know how that changes things um, cortically and then um, really just sort of like talking through um, because a lot of times when someone has pain as you know like they'll catastrophize and they'll like you know really like start to have these cognitive distortions of like you know if they bend down to tie their shoelace, you know, they'll never be able to stand back up again or something. And, and so again, I'm not a psychologist. I don't pretend to be, I don't, you know, I'm the first to tell my clients like, you know, that's outside of my scope, but it is within my scope to talk to them and just sort of like walk through when they have these like greatest fears and these humongous cognitive distortions just to be like, all right, so like, how do you think that would actually work? And like, you really think that if you bend down to tie your shoe, like, and then it usually comes down to, like, I'm sure you've had this experience, like, that happened one time. Like, one time they bent down to tie their shoe and they had serious back pain. Yes. And it's like, okay, but how many times in your lifetime have you bent, you've bent down a million times? Like, it was just one time. But, you know, that's what happens. This thing happens once. It, you know, it, it takes up so much real estate in your brain because it's so traumatic that you start to build these distortions and these protections. And um, so I, to me, so those guys have a term that I like as well. So cognitive reframing. Mm-hmm. So part of it is just explaining the basics of the biological stuff as I see it. And then on the other side, just again, really listening and talking. And then again, just exposing some of the cognitive distortions and just reframing it. and, you know, like, for example, I'll say to someone, like, all right, so if you don't bend down to tie your shoes, would you at least bend down to touch your knees? And they're like, oh, I'll try, you know, mm-hmm. and sort of coaxing them along. So that's what I found personally to be the most effective, a combination of those two. Do you ever, like, relate that to, um, like, a somatic sensation? So overall, in, when you're saying, like, overall, can you touch your knees? So can you tell me about how it feels? You yeah, know, sure. that kind yeah. Of, that kind of thing as well. Mm-hmm. So they have like some sort of, um, like not only just cognitive reframe, but also a sensation reframe too. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't have a particular um, like roadmap I'll use for that. I'll just sort of, mm-hmm. but yeah, for sure, because I, I think that's really uh, that's really powerful and really important. That like, you know, and sometimes you know you kind of have to like. Trojan horse it where you're like, but you like, so just like reach for your phone and, you know, and that's, that's what's so fascinating to me about pain and what's so complex about pain is that it's so contextual. Yeah. 
I say to someone that's scared of bending over to tie their shoes, okay, will you bend over to tie your shoes? No. Okay, will you bend over to touch your knees? Uh, maybe. And I'm like, okay, can you just grab your phone because I want you to take a picture? They'll go into like full spinal flexion. <laughs> it's like in this weird position by the couch. And I didn't set it up there intentionally. but And that's the thing because like they've taken it out of the context of which they're – They've built up all these like distortions about that. It's going to kill them to bend over, but they'll do it when they reach for their phone because they don't like the alarm is off temporarily because they're not, they're just thinking about reaching for the phone. And so sometimes that I have to do it like that and I'll be like, okay, but you see, like you just reach for, so again, you you just have to get a dopamine fix first. (laughs) (laughs) It's really just like, you know, because I, from my personal life, I once went through I still can't explain it. No one, you know, there's really no explanation to it other than about five years ago, I went through this period where I had extreme insomnia. When I say extreme insomnia, I mean, even being on meds that would knock out an elephant, I would go like three days without sleeping. And it was one of the scariest. It lasted, the worst of it lasted for about six weeks. Hmm. And then it was probably like, six months in total from the beginning to the end where I was able to get off all drugs and kind of fall asleep again. And even starting with like three hours of sleep and four hours of sleep. And, you know, there's no therapist that was like, it was because, you know, when you were five, like there's no, (laughs) and there's no specific explanation for it. And so that, and, you know, doing what I do, I think in some ways it's harder for some, for people like us, um, when you actually know a little bit about how the wiring works, mm-hmm. just because then you're always like, I don't know, they, like things for me sort of have to work in spite of because I'm like, I just sort of like sabotage letting things help me just because I'm like, does that really work? Or like, so anyway. Uh, <laughs> yes. I mean, I mean, you have to be on your toes. You have to be on your yeah. toes. It affected my sleep. It affected my life so significantly for at least two years after that. And I even knew. And so I actually had this sheet of what my therapist at the time gave me, cognitive distortions. And my mind would be like, okay, if I, because in my mind, I was like, if I don't fall asleep by 2 a.m., I'm just not going to be able to. I had all these. Yeah. And I couldn't even. In, in, and I've also found just as I was having this experience, um, I think marketing really, I feel like if you ask anybody in the Western world, at least like, do you sleep well? Just about everyone's like, no, like everyone feels like they don't get enough sleep. Their sleep isn't good enough. And so try having kids. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on the new York city subways, like that inundated with like ads everywhere you go. And it just started to be all these ads for pillows and sheets and sleep meds and, and so I just felt like I was like surrounded by all this stuff. And it was, it was making it really like as, as relating to like someone that hurt their back that doesn't want to bend over to tie their shoes. Yeah. Like, you know, part of what the reason a lot of us put up with living in New York is because, you know, like you have access to all this entertainment and other stuff. And, um, you know, I, I really lived like a monk for like two years after that just because I was petrified of 
going out, staying out late, not being able to sleep. If I miss one night of sleep, this whole thing is going to start over again. And I almost lost my job and my company. And my, and so I know what that's like firsthand. So I'm, I'm empathetic to it. You see what people go through. And, and I mean, I can't even imagine um, going through what you went through. So that just had to have been a nightmare. Yeah, it was awful. But I've never had physical pain like that. Mm. And so because and a lot of, like and I think I just read one of your Instagram posts the other day. So you had some significant injury a while back, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I had I had lower back pain ever since I was 14 years old, the kind that like you literally wake up and you you have to lay on the ground because you're you feel like you want to cry, you know? So it's and I dealt with it. I dealt with it for a really really long time and um I always thought if I went the route of either physical therapy or um, schooling and exercise and sports science, I'd find a way to get strong enough and capable enough so that the pain would just go away and it just never did, you know? So that's what really, that's what really broadened my horizons on what, um, what coaches were um, saying around me and um, also getting as much diversified information as I could from multiple sources so that I could start playing with just these different ideas and seeing how they work together, you know, and, and that was, that was very liberating to find other, other people that were, um, willing to go down that same rabbit hole in order to explore because, you know, there's, <laughs> it's really tough when, you know, the whole entire day you just have throbbing back pain. You know, and, and most people don't know that they're like, oh, he's, he's healthy. He's in his forties. Mm -hmm. He's pretty strong. And, and man, I like, I could pick up, I could pick up 600 pounds at one point in time, but you know, I, I could barely move for a while, you know? And so strength, strength doesn't always equal feeling good. And, um, at, at any level for that, for that matter, you know, it could be microscopic strength or, um, or global whole body type strength. And you could still feel like crap. So it, it, it's very, like you said, contextual and how to, um, how to find the links of what takes you out of that state becomes, um, becomes one of ownership of, of that state for sure. So do you think that your experience has made you more empathetic to people that come in and with chronic pain or less empathetic to people that come in? with chronic pain that's a, or all over the place? That's a great question. You know, I think that I literally, my shift so far for when I see clients is I, I check my emotional state before every single session. And, and what I mean by that is I shift into a, a different role, right? So I'm, mm -hmm. I did a lot of work in understanding my identity versus my role. So I mm -hmm. secure my identity by saying exactly the, the components of the pieces of who I am, right? I'm, I'm empathetic. Um, I can be um, impatient at times when I don't understand, so I work hard at listening. Um, the role of Keith, the um, exercise specialist or muscle tester or whatever the heck it is, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's fresh every single time, so then my schedule has to be um, or I have to choose to have a schedule that allows me to, to have the um, mental energy and stamina to be able to always set my role um, in the right place and have my identity 
um, completely set so that my role is is un, unflappable so that I can go in and observe when I need to observe and um, and create the space necessary to be able to listen. So, so that's, that's a big that's a big thing. And, and, and I do my best to be an observer rather than um, it be about me, you know. Mm-hmm. But so the role is somewhat the constant, right? That like, at least in this context, like someone is coming to you as a health professional. So your role is, and it may, your hat may change, you know, if you're working with like one of the brewers, it's probably a little bit different than someone that's 75 with like, you know, double knee replacements. Mm -hmm. But is the identity something that you try also to keep fairly stereotyped between all clients or is that something that varies? that's for me that's for me like they the identity is mine you know it's it's instead of how but is that static or dynamic do you sort of like change that depending on the person or you try to like once you like strap on the tights and get into like get into the office yeah no, that's a great question you know I, I, I'd say that the identity is always a moving target no matter what yeah mm-hmm. I, I would say that how you do very personal work to understand how you communicate, to understand how you view yourself, um, what your worldview is, and what your body view is, is um, a part of that identity. And then um, when you step into the role of the observer and the listener, to be able to be that like little professor and, and, and really be nurturing to another individual so that you build trust whether or not they work with you or not. Right. And that's, that's really where, where that stems from. It's like, I want to make sure that the first thing that I do is I meet somebody where they're at. And if, if I have little idea of my own story and the stories that I walked into that room with, then that person, that that person is going to have difficulty being heard from me. You know, I'm I'm going to have difficulty listening to that person because I got my own stories running in my head. Mm -hmm. And then their, their shot of my shot of asking the right questions at the right time, mirroring at the right time and getting to a point where someone is literally talking about critical things that matter rather than superficial stuff. That's that, that they've told everybody else because it's their brain's method of protecting themselves from the truth. Then, then I have something that I've made a real connection and then I've started to build trust and we can, we can actually go down a path of trying to uh, formulate a relationship, you know? So that's, that's what, that's what I, that's what I'm talking about as far as role versus identity. And I do believe that they're both moving targets. Mm. Yeah. And dynamic, so, very dynamic. Um, I also think meeting, I'm just curious what your take on this is. So I think meeting people where they're at, um, is a really important skill to have. Um, and at the same time, as you just get more years in the business, you feel like, um, so I, I feel like the, I sort of feel like I have a dichotomous mind on this thing. So on one hand, um, I just organically, like I am able, like 
I have certain political views, which we could or could not talk about, but if you had to guess, I'm an East Coast Jew, and so you could probably figure out which side of the fence I would lean more toward. Um, <laughs> I, I, won't hold, I won't hold being Republican against you, okay? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the thing is, like, I don't, I don't need someone to agree with me on anything, frankly. Like, I'm, there's a bandwidth of, like, if someone is like, look, I support every one of Hitler's ideas, we're probably going to have a difficult time meeting, I'm going to have a difficult time meeting them where they're at. But mm -hmm. like, I don't need, to, whether we're talking about like exercise stuff, neuroscience stuff, politics, like I don't need someone to agree with me Yeah. to like respect them, like them, you know, like um, if we have really diverging interests and views, like, you know, maybe we're not going to be golf buddies, but A, it's actually served me really well in business because um, A, if I only took people I liked, then I would be, you know, if I only took people that their worldview corresponded exactly with mine, I'd be limiting myself to who I could work with. And B, I can't tell you how much I've learned just by being an observer. And like when someone has a certain viewpoint, and I think honestly, at some point, we'll probably talk about some of the motor learning and motor control stuff. But the reason I've been, because I don't come from any, like I was never in the physics club in high school. I was a terrible student in high school. But the reason I've been able to adapt to this really complex esoteric information is because um, I'm able to just sort of like listen and like I'm curious about like why, you know, why someone would think things in a, in a certain way. So, mm. um like I don't, I've learned a ton just by listening. Someone could have a viewpoint that totally contradicts mine. And instead of feeling like rigid and tight about it, I'm just like, huh, I'm interested. Like, why do you see things the way you see? And I let them explain it, which I've learned a ton. And even if while they're saying it, I don't believe it. I'm sort of like in my mind, I'm figuring out a good argument as to why I'm, you know, not agreeing with it or they teach me something new. And mm -hmm. the other the other end of that spectrum is that I'm feeling actually now that I'm unemployed, I don't know, maybe this isn't as good, but <laughs> up until a month ago, I feel a lot more liberated as I get older and I'm inching towards 50. Just to, if I feel like I've done the best I can to meet someone where they're at and that intersection is just someone I don't want to work with, I feel much more comfortable now than I did 10 years ago saying to someone, Hey, you know what? Um, Thank you for coming in. I'm really happy to you or even like, let's say we're working together. I feel much more comfortable cutting those relationships off as opposed to like constantly needing myself to try to keep meeting them where they're at. Where like, we're just not where we're at is just not a place where I think it's either personally beneficial or professionally beneficial. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on the really difficult part of when, because to your point, like, Man, you think coronavirus is contagious? Like someone's energy and the type of work we do is so contagious that you know as well as I do. Someone that you're just not gelling with. Buffers. Whatever. You know. Those are the long, like I cannot believe it when I look at the clock and it's like three minutes have gone by. Like they are the longest. <laughs> like I would much rather treat 500 pound wrestlers all day than one session with someone that like just drains me emotionally. You know, we always tell people that they should be exercising and then we give them zero parameters of something that's very beneficial for them to do. So like Brandon and I worked hard to put a construct together for a safe environment for the people that we do work with one-on-one. -on -one. 
for small groups. Um, number two, the idea of the perfect fit for a client starts with uh, the consultation process. Um, and I went through a couple different classes for that. And mm -hmm. um, to, be, to be honest, like the best, the best one was um, a course um, when I was, when I was, um, I was back in, um, oh, I was at Colorado, was practice and client intake management from Greg Mack. Mm -hmm. So it was just a fabulous course. And now we adapted that at uh, Exercise Pro Ed. So, and, it, and it's just how to set yourself in a position where you, set, you state your upfront contracts, um, you state your boundaries, you understand your boundaries, you understand your biases walking into a situation, and you have a series of questions that are specifically there, a way to nurture and support other people, so that as you're going through these questions, you're finding out whether or not they're even the right person to even work with, like if you can even help them, and then if it's a yes for them, and it's a yes for you, because there's some things where you're like, man, you know, this long-term structural thing that you have going on, your expectations, like I feel like, I feel like if we work together, your timeline and my timeline are completely different. And are you going to be okay with a, a five-year process for this thing that's, you know, or, or, or longer, you know, I'm like, are you going to be okay with that? You know, and, and, and if those, those yeses or nos aren't in alignment, then you have this mutual mystification where, where we both, you know, like one person thinks they're delivering this thing and another person thinks that they're delivering another thing and they're completely off and in it, you can feel it because yeah, one person, um, if it's the practitioner that feels like the time's going slow, it would be the, you know, the client that feels like the time is going slow, you know, and, and, oh. Having that, yeah, yeah it, it should literally feel like you you are you are um, you're doing your um, N1 experiment and you're doing no harm in a way that um, you both have the expectation is that you're going to move better and uh, with better quality and you're going to feel better, right? That's that's really it, you know. So for the most part, you're able to cut it off at the pass at the consultation, right? Because you can. At the consultation, you'll sort of vet out the people that, like, right off the bat, you just, like, again, you're meeting them where they're at, but, like, where they're at, where you're at, just don't seem to be harmonious. Yeah, it's but all it, coaching. It's right? Like, a certain percentage, just like you said, your identity and role is dynamic and can change, so is the other person. Like, oh, for know, sure. Experience. I'd say I'm it's like, a shift. I'll present a certain way. Yeah. And then, and look, I don't know, it could be the way I, maybe I, my mood has changed or something, but like you get into this thing and then it's, but I guess what I'm curious about with you is that, do you feel like more empowered as, you know, you just keep building your business to, if and when you, it, it sounds like you don't have, and you know, frankly, I don't have to have a lot of these conversations either. It's maybe once or twice a year at most, Yeah. but you feel more empowered as you, you know, just sort of keep expanding to be able to have those difficult conversations with people and let them go when you know like you feel like you just can't help them move forward well I, I feel like the understanding on the front end takes all the work on the back end away you know so it's yeah. like you know, when people start a marketing process like your marketing is all built around your message 
and your boundaries and who you really want to work with. And that's all the way down to your consultation and your process so that you're, you're literally working with people you're excited to work with all the time. And those expectations of what may happen and may not happen are being facilitated and talked about in your process as well, because that's all marketing too. It's all like, instead of saying marketing, it's about relationships and communicating the truth or your version of your reality. I wouldn't even say truth. I would say your version of the reality and trying to help them understand like they're, they're coming to you with their reality and you're saying, well, you know, if you want this type of reality, this is my expectation and here is the, um, my experience and here's what literature says because you, you trust me for this, right? Just like I would, I would trust um, my client that does boots to make the best type of, type of boots for, with the best type of leather. So, you know, when, when there are all these practitioners that refuse to acknowledge their story, um, refuse to market because they're used to cheesy, salesy marketing stuff, and rather than having and being able to change it, just like they have the opportunity to change um, that experience of being a real a real exercise professional, it's like have a message, clearly communicate it, get better at communicating it so that the process that we have on the front end takes all of the back end burden away of dealing with time suckers and, and, and people that knock your energy down and even the amount of people we're seeing on a daily basis so that our cup's full for each person that we totally love right. to be with, you know? So I think that's, that's something that all of us really need to get better at. And that's one of the, the hearts of, of this entire podcast and this, this, these discussions, you know, is to try to, it's to promote that the best way possible or regardless of genre. The gist of the podcast, as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be that your interest is in talking to different health professionals and sort of just getting their their sort of take on how they run their individual business. It's a fair encapsulation. You know, that's where we started. I have a whole new vision of it now. It's where practitioners connect in order to find valuable resources for their team and build a team of people that they can trust and rely upon so that they build the practice that they've always wanted to build. Mm -hmm. And it's, is the goal to be multidisciplinary? Not necessarily. I think the goal is is primarily knowing what you want as a practitioner and then having other people that can fill in the gaps of what else you would like to provide for the outcome of the individual you want to work with. Where do you see your practice going in the near future? Um, well, that's a great question. So it's a brave new world. Um, it just so happens that over the past few years, so I, like yourself, you know, for a long time have been really down the rabbit hole of exercise and all these nuances and blah, 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 and was very anti-group fitness, at least on one perspective, just because, like, obviously, depending on the type of group fitness, like, there's just not enough specificity for me to do it personally and then for me to really recommend it, although... From a biopsychosocial perspective, I see the benefits of like you're doing with people you like, like it's fun, it's not drudgery. You know, I, I get that not everyone looks at exercise 
like we do, like solving this long math problem every day. And that's mm-hmm. totally fine. Um, but at a certain point, just as an entrepreneur, I was like, you know, this is really in New York City. So, I mean, I can't even tell you, like New York City is every couple of years, there's a new guru. Like 20 years ago, it was like DJs and every like people would wait, you know, four hours online to hear one stupid DJ. And then it was like a chef. And then now it's become like a trainer. And now it's not even a trainer. It's the group. It's the the soul cycle. Like it, it's always like the currency is like you go to a cocktail party or some party in New York City and it's like, what do you do? And now if you go to like a super high-end cocktail party in Manhattan and someone asks what you do and you're like, oh, I'm a Peloton instructor. You've got the room. You've got the crowd. That is <laughs> New York City. And so just as an entrepreneur a few years ago, I was like, look, I can't beat it. I just have to join it. So how can I join the group fitness experience in a way that actually works for me? So I took all the reinforcement stuff and I, I also do neurodynamics, all the stuff I learned from David Butler and, cool. and re, dynamic exercise, isometric exercise. And I put it into like a group fitness flow type class. And so I did all this work, I shot this whole class, spent a ton of money on getting it filmed and edited, and then basically sat on it for a couple of years because nothing, I was pitching it to a few investors as like this new group fitness thing. And as to quote one of the investors, like, it's just not sexy enough. And the truth is it's not, it's not like, it's the stuff we do, which is joint by joint assessment. And we're, um, so because of what's just happened in the last month, you gotta do it naked. What'd you say? You gotta do it naked. <laughs> Maybe I should have thought of that. Although you probably don't want to see a lot of those. Today. No, it's bad naked. <laughs> um, yeah, that would definitely fall in the bad naked category. So as it happens, a client of mine just reached out to me, who's a another serial entrepreneur and has built just a bunch of like startups. So she felt like obviously everyone in the world is starting their own virtual platform for health and. Um, so she wanted to start a, a platform for like, and it's, it's crazy how much it's shifting. So she's a marketer and she works with big companies like Coke and McDonald's and Nike. And so she's got a sophisticated way of like looking through trends. And even from the conversations we had two weeks ago to what we're working on now, it's changing. Hmm. But essentially the initial platform was, to it'd be myself and then a bunch of physical therapists to provide virtual PT appointments, hmm. um, which is fine. But you know, there's about a billion other people doing it, and even though I feel strongly that I've got to take and blah blah blah, um, but what we're finding out is that what seems to be more popular is doing uh, specific webinars and then after the webinar maybe offering like some group fitness classes or individual treatment so I've become the chief science officer of this company and ironically I'm not a physical therapist but everyone we're taking on is a physical therapist (laughs) and they I first have to like you know show them that like uh, I'm credible and but like I said, the, like what's cool is that look, I some of the people we're bringing on, so far everyone I've met is you know been a handful, and Emily Dodds, uh, you know, will hopefully be one of them. Hmm. Um, but it's been a small circle of like people we know through. So so far everyone has been pretty much on the same page, at least in terms of like the physiology and exercise instruction. But 
there's definitely down the road going to be people who, you know, see things very, very differently from the way I do. But I welcome it. And honestly, it's fine because, you know, as long as like I don't think there's anything that we're promoting that that is like, you know, potentially injurious, I'm totally happy to provide like a spectrum of a bunch of different perspectives. So I'm working on that company. I am, I do feel like there will always be a place. I can't, what we do, yeah. um, feel like there will always be, a, just like you can't tickle yourself, you yeah. know, you, like sensory wise, you just can't do it. There will always be a place and it doesn't matter what type of muscle therapy, whatever we're doing, I believe is specific enough that there'll always be a place for it. Um, and even if it's less than what I had a month ago or so, and it's also being a clinician is really important to just to educate. You know, you know, you just can't, it just can't be theoretical. Like I've, if you go through academia and you start to talk to professors that haven't been in a clinic in 30 years, like they're obviously still really intelligent, know a lot of stuff, but like they're just, they, they're just detached in a way that hands on is important. Yeah. Hands on is important, man. In the trenches. I still plan on running my clinic. Um, I hope that the virtual stuff takes off and leads me to like some different opportunities. And um, we didn't really get a chance to talk about it today, but a big part of what's interesting to me is to try to take um, all this really interesting stuff to me that's on the motor learning side that just doesn't get applied in the day-to-day consumer exercise world and to try to bridge that gap because you know i think people would think that a lot of the stuff in regards to motor learning is all this like you know stroking your chin and professors with leather elbow patches and stuff that like just makes sense in a lab and doesn't really have any application to what you're doing in a gym sounds kinky off base (laughs) (laughs) like motor control some of these theories about like motor control like that stuff is a little bit in the weeds but motor learning which is skill acquisition which is like feedback, cueing, practice schemes, like, you know, disseminating a skill into whether like, you know, you've got to react to something or you get to control the timing. All this stuff is really so applicable to like just training people in a gym, training them for sort of any sort of like sport or skill. And like, unfortunately, like all this stuff is really just, and even if you study motor learning, most of the people that study this stuff are just researchers that then go on to higher levels of academia. There's yeah. so few people that then take this information and apply it to this huge field of what people are doing every day in the gym. So well, then we gonna have to talk, we're going to have to talk about it in another well, time then. We're going to have to get together and, <laughs> and you're going to have to like open the floodgates of motor learning and, and how time. you've been. been My schedule is open. So. We'll definitely get on the horn again. If people want to find you, where should they go? Um, my Instagram is, and I hope I get this right. It's, I believe it's. <laughs> this is not an act. I promise you. Hmm? This, I believe it's at. I think that all Instagram handles start with at. Valerie, is that right? What? Does my Instagram start with at? You have to put in at. Yes, okay. <laughs> okay. So at exercise underscore intelligence. Um, and I haven't done a great job with updating that, but I, I'm trying to do more. And then if someone just wants to contact me personally, 
Just my email is Gregory at exercise, then a dash, not an underscore, <laughs> intelligence.com. And if anyone wants a seminar in the worst website names you can ever come up with, I can lead a master class because combining <laughs> the words exercise, a dash, and intelligence in one web in one web address, I can tell you is the absolute stupidest thing you could ever do. Well, mine's body-activation.com. So oh, yeah, I'm right those words like people can generally spell. <laughs> How you spell intelligence? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, I'll, I'll talk to you soon, and right, uh, we'll, we'll get you back on, and, and we'll talk some motor learning, okay? Oh, man, love it. Thanks, buddy. Take care. Peace. Make sure you head over to bizbody.net for show notes and more. Give us a five-star review on iTunes with a positive comment to help people out find a podcast. And next week, look for our next episode with language expert Mark England. Until then, 